All right, good morning, everyone. Why don't we get started? Anyone uh, have something they want to be, want the class praying about this week? So I'll mention one thing. Um, I was just talking with Al, who often plays on the worship team's keyboards, and he's having an ankle surgery, foot and ankle surgery this week. It's pretty involved. I think he said they're expecting it to be four hours long. But hopefully it'll help him uh, walk better. So we'll pray for that. I'm sure other people have other stuff going on too. All right. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you very much uh, for your grace and mercy. We do thank you uh, for the stories that you've told in the Bible that reveal yourself to us, that explain your grace and how much you love us despite our shortcomings. We thank you for that grace through Jesus that allows us to have a relationship with you. We pray uh, for our brothers and sisters who are suffering and in need of your help. We lift up Al to you and ask that that surgery would go well, that there would be no infections, and that it would really make a difference, that he would be able to walk and that he would not have any problems with his knee or his hip after that surgery is done. We ask for the other people suffering, that you would give them strength and encouragement and healing. And we ask for your help as we ponder uh, what you did for us through Jesus. Help us to understand what John says about that and apply it to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we are going to pick up in John 12. And I'll actually start by reading the very end of chapter 11. So this is right after the leadership has said, uh, we don't want to lose our place, so it's better for one man to die for the whole nation than that the whole nation perish. And Jesus somehow, we don't know how, knows that they've intensified their plot. So in 1154, We're told, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So he moves to some small village, we think something like 12 miles or so outside Jerusalem, where he can sort of lay low for a while. Don't know how long we think maybe anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. Then Passover comes up. We think uh, this Passover would have been in early April. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. So in the first century, when they still have the temple, Uh, Passover would have been something every Jew would have wanted to participate in because the Old Testament says it's mandatory. It's only to be celebrated in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem just gets packed with people coming not only from Galilee where Jesus had ministered, but even from all over the Roman Empire. And it's very important to be ceremonial clean when that happens So a lot of Jews would have gotten there a week early so they could spend a week in an environment they knew would not cause any ceremonial uncleanliness because if you touched a dead body or you did something that made you unclean, you don't get to celebrate Passover. You you have to do this remedial Passover a month later, and no one wants to do that. So you've got... Jews from everywhere packed into Jerusalem. And they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? 
But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So the crowd and the leadership are on different wavelengths at this point. The crowd is intrigued by Jesus. They're hoping he'll show up because they've heard rumors about him. They want to see him. The leaders want to arrest him. And Jesus makes his move. We're told six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived. You may remember Bethany is something like a mile and a half to two miles away from Jerusalem. And so um, there's a lot of debate about what six days before the Passover means because there's wiggle room. So if you look at 12.1, we're told six days before the Passover. Then if we look at 12.12, we're told next day the great crowd that had come for the feast, heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So putting those time references together with what we know from other Gospels, here's the sequence that I think ends up being what makes the most sense. And it's confusing as heck. It's like working in two different languages because the way we think of dates is different than the way first century Jews thought of it. So, if you were to Google when is Passover 2023, it would give you a date that's the equivalent of Nisan 15. That is a Jewish month. If you go to the Old Testament, the way Passover was celebrated, that Moses set it up like over 3,000 years ago, then they didn't even call the month Nisan. We think they called it Abib. But anyway, same idea. First month of the religious calendar, you slaughter the lambs the afternoon of the 14th of the month. Then you distribute the lambs. Everyone eats the Passover supper the night, which is actually the beginning of Nisan 15. And this is kind of the key translation thing we have to get into Their days of the calendar don't switch at midnight. They switch at sundown. So Passover is a holiday that goes over two days. Okay? So it starts with slaughtering lambs on the 14th. Then you eat the Passover meal with your family at the beginning of the 15th. Okay? Now we don't have a temple anymore. So especially for American Jews, what they think of Passover and really focus on is that Passover meal. The other thing you'll notice if you Google, well, when is Passover now, is it may give you a whole week. The reason for that is that Passover rolls right into another religious festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So people aren't going all the way to Jerusalem just for Passover and leaving. They're staying for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's really a whole week of religious festivals that are a major deal for Jews. And now they tend to refer, and even in the first century, sometimes refer to the whole thing simply as Passover. Okay? So what would be six days before that? So that has wiggle room, too. When do you start counting the six days? When did the six days end? That's a tricky issue. There's ambiguity there, especially since Passover. John could be thinking of when, you, when Passover begins with the slaughtering of the lambs on the 14th, He could be thinking of the Passover meal on the 15th. We don't know. So I think this is kind of interesting to me. Maybe it won't be interesting to you. Uh, Believe it or not, like if it ever becomes legally relevant when there's like a 14-day period, do you realize we actually have laws that say when you start counting that period. So like in the rules of civil procedure, we have rules that say if a court tells you to do something in 14 days, you do or don't 
count the first day that the judge says that. You start counting on the next day, and it ends on this day. And the reason we have that rules is if I just say, get this to me in 14 days, it's ambiguous, right? And you could interpret it one day off from where I'm interpreting it. So that's why we don't really know. What I'm working with is what makes the most sense to me is that Jesus arrives in Bethany on the 8th of Nisan, so before Friday sundown. Then he observes the Sabbath during the day, the next Saturday, and then the big dinner we're going to talk about happens Saturday night after the Sabbath. That works out to about six days before the 14th. So I think that works. I don't think Jesus would have traveled on a Sabbath to Bethany, so that's why I think he got there before the Sabbath. Questions, comments, concerns about that so far? Yeah. So, great question is to what extent did Jesus observe the Sabbath? He was okay with disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. We know that. I think that goes to what's the definition of work. I think Jesus and the Jewish leadership had different understandings of that. Jesus clearly had a more liberal experience understanding of what constituted work and what was allowable than they did. He thought it was okay to do ministry on the Sabbath and to do things that were necessary for ministry, right? That doesn't mean he thought you could do anything you want on the Sabbath. And I don't think he would have taken a significant journey on the Sabbath. But we don't know for sure. So some people think he got there on Saturday. Okay. Well, some people think that. I don't think so. Um, I think... Um, a lengthy journey would have been something Jesus would have thought felt squarely in something you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. But we don't know. I mean, there's some scholars that'll say, yeah, we think Jesus got to Bethany on Saturday and they had the dinner that night. What people seem to agree on is that uh, the dinner happens Saturday night after the Sabbath observance is done. What seems to be Something Christians and scholars disagree on is, did he get there on Saturday because he was comfortable walking on Saturday, or did he get there on Friday and then observe the the Sabbath? And you can make it work both ways. Because Passover could be thought of as being on the 15th or the 14th, either one could be six days before Passover. So don't really know. Could be either one. Any other questions? Yeah. Sure. Well, there's a lot. I mean, we know the Pharisees built, quote, a hedge around the law so that to protect you from crossing the boundary. So it's kind of like you've got, like, think about your parents. They didn't want you to go in the street. They knew you weren't the best at obeying them, so they told you don't even go to the sidewalk, right? So we know the Pharisees did some of that stuff with things like the Sabbath, where they kind of expanded beyond to make sure you didn't violate the actual Sabbath. Um, I don't know that we know, but if you read the Pentateuch, the Sabbath observance was strict. 
So I think the prohibition on travel is long standing. If you, I think if you went to Israel in 1000 BC, there weren't a lot of people making 10 mile journeys on the Sabbath. So I don't think that's something the Pharisees came up with late in the game as a bait and switch. But there's certainly plenty of other things, and I think the argument that Jesus has with them about walking through a grain field while you're doing ministry and eating some of the grain as you go is an example of how there's room to disagree. And it's clear where Jesus came down on that. No. So so this is the problem, is that that sacrifice needs to be done in the temple. So no, they don't. And so they have to have substitute stuff. So, for example, the New York Times has a great recipe for a kosher brisket. (laughs) That's very popular. So they, they... They do eat certain traditional foods. Uh, They have the bitter herbs. I'm sure a lot of them do eat lamb. But it's not one that's been sacrificed in a temple. So they've had to make accommodations in how they celebrate the holiday because they aren't able to slaughter lambs at the temple or go to Jerusalem. So, I, you know, I, I think that what kind of Jew, how a Jew define themselves would change the answer, like how strict they are. Are you talking to a Hasidic Jew, an Orthodox Jew, a Reformed Jew, or a Progressive Jew? And so since they lost the temple, there's been a lot of thinking by a lot of rabbis about different ways you answer what produces grace and forgiveness. And the progressive answer gets really vague, and it's about the suffering of the people and the goodness of God, and it's far away from any sort of literal understanding of what blood does. But I would argue, you know, they, they were supposed to follow these rituals in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament times, all that were things they were to do to act out what was really salvific, which was their belief in God's grace towards them. I don't think um, the New Testament is the era of grace and the Old Testament is not. Even the, the actual sacrifices never saved them. They were their way of expressing their faith. But didn't it represent Christ and the blood of Christ which fulfilled that? So it was still sure. God said life is in the blood. And yeah. So how did they get away from that's the forgiveness is that blood, life that dies for us. It's representing Christ, right? Well they don't look at it as representing Christ. They, they don't think Christ does anything for them. So the, the big problem for them is getting around the fact that there's no official sacrifice. Because if you recall, in the original Passover, even if you were a Jew, if you didn't put the blood on your doorway, you lost your firstborn, right? You were treated just like an unbelieving Egyptian, correct? So I'm not saying the ability to use blood in sacrifices and in Passover wasn't important, but ultimately in terms of whether Abraham ends up in heaven or hell, it's a faith relationship based on grace, not whether you have lamb's blood or brisket or whatever. Yeah. Probably. I mean, they've They've thought this through, and they've come up with all sorts of things to accommodate the fact that they can't do these literal sacrifices, and that would make sense. Yep? Where is it written that Passover was on 
So it's not. So um, it can be. So Passover is always the 14th is when you always slaughter the lambs. The 15th is when you always have the supper. Okay? So that means it floats in terms of the day of the week it falls on. We think the year that Jesus is crucified, Passover happens Thursday night in our thinking. He goes to the garden. He gets tried, what we would think of as Friday morning, gets crucified on Friday, gets buried on Friday, and they are rushing to bury him because they can't bury him on the Sabbath. So we think he gets crucified the day before the Sabbath, and that's part of the urgency to get the burial done, is that the people helping with that don't want to be burying someone on the Sabbath. So he's in the tomb on the Sabbath, then he rises on what to us is Sunday. So great question. This is another difference between how I think first century Jews think and how we think. And so they think if something happens today, they would count that as one day. So Jesus goes into the tomb on Friday while it's still Friday. That's the first day. Then he's in the tomb Friday night through Saturday night. That's the second day. Then he's in the tomb Sunday night, which is, in their thinking, part of the third day, then rises on Sunday. So in their mind, that is a three-day period it totally doesn't sound like a three-day period to Americans. That's not how we would typically count. We typically start the next day. So if I told you I was going to count three days and we're thinking of today as Sunday, you would typically think of Monday and go Tuesday and Wednesday and, and think it would be one day more than they thought. I've researched that before. I don't think that's just us weaseling out of it. Um, And part of the reason I think that is the apostles, everyone in the New Testament's really comfortable talking about that period as three days, but everyone back then clearly thinks he rose on Sunday, the first day of the week, and that's why they established Sunday as the day they celebrated worship. So nobody in the New Testament is troubled by this, the period from Friday to Sunday being thought of as three days. We're the ones that are troubled by it because it's totally a foreign way of thinking to us. Yeah. Yeah. No, not really. I don't care about spelling. I'll, I'll be upfront about that. So I'm willing to believe you. Thanks for the correction. Anything else? So we'll come back to this. It's kind of putting together everything um, that all four Gospels have to say about the timing is a big jigsaw puzzle. And it, Christians certainly don't agree on how it all fits together. So for example, I think it really doesn't matter whether Jesus gets to Bethany on Friday or Saturday. That's not a big deal. All right? So let's assume he's in Bethany where Lazarus was, and not surprisingly, they decide to give a dinner to honor him. So here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, which is on brand, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So we think typical Jewish dinner. It's a low table. They're reclining with their feet pointed away from the table and their head, torso, and hands close to the table, reaching in the table and eating. 
Then Mary, so Martha's sister, took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we think um, from other sources, this was probably worth about 300 denarii. A year has 300 days of labor in it, typical. So we think this is the equivalent of taking a year of your salary and dumping it on Jesus' feet. And keep in mind, their lifespan shorter than ours, their careers shorter than ours. This is a huge amount of money that she's taken and choosing to use to clean Jesus' feet. And keep in mind, uh, poor society don't have a lot. One thing that's very important to a woman in that society is her hair. So she's not using a rag to use to wipe Jesus' feet. She's using her own hair. So this is, by any measure, an extravagant display of devotion to Jesus. Oh, and oh, by the way, cleaning someone's feet is one of the most menial tasks you can do in that society. To have to clean someone else's feet is a huge show of subservience, servitude, as most of you know from reading about the Last Supper, right? So, and she does it in front of everyone else. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which was probably pretty nice because they don't have deodorant. They don't have foot powder. They probably can't take hot water showers every day. So they probably were used to things stinking all the time as part of life in the first century. So this is really special. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So Judas does the math pretty fast. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We don't know how John knows that Judas was this. Maybe after the crucifixion and Judas' death, they go back and they're like, whoa, we're short a bunch of money. Where'd it go? Judas must have taken it. Um, Maybe, we don't know. But what's interesting um, is there are all sorts of fascinating, significant questions lurking in this paragraph. I think you have to acknowledge that on one level, Judas is asking a legitimate question. Um, Could there have been better uses for an asset of that value? And he throws one out there. Sell it, give it to the poor. Giving to the poor was a big deal in Judaism, even in the first century. Um, You know, another example is some of you have been to Europe. I haven't been there, but I've seen photos you go into some of the things in Vatican City or some of the cathedrals in the other cities, and you could ask yourself, think about how much effort, money, labor went into building some of those things. Would we have been better off putting that money into missions or using it to help the poor? That's a legitimate debate Christians can have, and it raises difficult questions I think part of the reason it's difficult is Judas shows you how quickly our own fleshly, selfish interests taint any sort of attempt we make to answer those questions. He wanted it because if, you, if Mary had taken that perfume and sold it and given the cash to him to use for the poor he would have been able to take some of it for himself. So when he argues that Mary should have done that, it's tainted by his own selfish interest. And, you know, if I'm out fundraising for a building, there's always that issue lurking in the background. Do I have an interest in that building being built? Does that taint my analysis? That makes it really hard 
to decide, well, how big a building do we need? How nice does it need to be? And Jesus gives uh, one of the counter arguments. He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So he says what Mary did was right. This was not only an appropriate use of this expensive perfume, it was divinely intended. And he says something that Mary wouldn't have even been anticipating at this point. There's no reason to believe Mary thinks Jesus is about to die and that she is literally preparing his body for his burial. We have every reason to believe Mary's doing it as an extravagant display of honor and gratitude for bringing her brother back to life, right? But sometimes we do things that have more spiritual significance than we even realize. And Jesus says this is one of those times where, in addition to that, it also serves symbolically as preparation for my burial. Because one of the times it was okay to use extravagant amounts of perfume in that society is when you're preparing a body for burial. So we think, for example, that Joseph and Nicodemus put spices and different stuff on Jesus' body when they're wrapping and preparing him for burial. So Jesus says, no, this extravagant display of honor towards me was appropriate in part because the time I'm with you and the time that you can, the church can show that display to me in this literal way is short and limited, all right? The poor is going to be an ongoing problem throughout the church age. So you'll have plenty of opportunities down the road if you sincerely want to help the poor. And I think there's principles lurking in that comment that are important. Um, I think what that suggests to us is that in a fallen world, even the church isn't going to be able to solve the problem of poverty. And so you're going to have to draw boundaries on what resources you put into poverty versus missions, evangelism, and showing adoration to God. And so those kind of debates about, well, how should we devote our resources are going to be ongoing debates, and what you're searching for is balance, and there are times when spending a huge amount of resources on nothing more than a display of worship towards God is entirely appropriate. We don't know much about Judas's origin story. So, you know, when you look at the stories about the disciples, we know details about very few of them. So, for example, we know Matthew was a tax collector, and we kind of have the story of him getting called. We know almost nothing about Judas Iscariot before this. We know um, Jesus has predicted that one of the disciples is going to betray him. So he knows all along what Judas is up to. But it appears none of the other disciples do, because when we get to the Last Supper, they still don't, haven't figured it out. So this is one of the troubling things, I think, from our perspective, is that Judas would have looked just like one of the other people. In addition to secretly taking money for his own purposes, he's probably doing ministry that looks just like the ministry that the other disciples are doing every step of the way. Okay? Very troubling. So, but what he does in betraying Jesus shows he was never a genuine believer. So one of the lessons from Judas is that you can do a lot of things 
that look good to a human being on the outside, but in the final analysis may not have been genuinely motivated by any sort of genuine relationship with God. It is. Yeah. Ah, so great question. Yeah, so great question. Is This incident is covered in other Gospels. I put it together slightly different than the way you put it. So here's the way I reconcile it, and not everyone agrees with this. So Luke talks about an earlier episode. I Well, let's get... So if you go to the side notes at the very end, so go to, go to page 14. So we'll kind of work back. So Luke 7, so early in Jesus' ministry, Luke 7 tells a story starting in verse 36. where a woman pours perfume on Jesus, cries on his feet, wipes his feet with her hair, and also pours perfume on them. I think this is a totally different incident because it's earlier, and there are other key differences. One is a Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner with him. I don't think there were any Pharisees inviting to have Jesus have dinner with them right before the crucifixion. So I think it's a different guy. The other thing that's different is, as the story goes on, it focuses on the Pharisee, and the Pharisee thinks this woman is unclean and says, man, if this guy were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We have every reason to believe that does not describe Mary, that Mary is a respected woman, a devout woman. So that's another reason. And then the end of the story isn't anything to do with Judas. It's about gratitude and having debts forgiven. So I think the differences between Luke and what I just read to you and John are so significant that they're different incidents. Okay. Well, first questions, comments about that part of the analysis. All right, now Matthew and Mark also talk about it. So let's look at Matthew, for example. Matthew 26. In contrast, I think the differences in how Matthew and Mark tell the story can be reconciled with John's account. So I think Matthew, Mark, and John are talking about the same incident. So Matthew 26, 6 says, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Well, John doesn't talk about that. But saying he poured it on Jesus' feet, saying she poured it on Jesus' feet, doesn't exclude the possibility that she also poured some on his head. Okay? And anointing is something that's commonly done on the head, so there's no reason she couldn't have poured it on both the head and the feet. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. This indicates that not just Judas, but other disciples shared Judas' concern. So, why then does it show up later in in the week of Passover? So if you look at it, what Matthew's done, so back up a little bit to Matthew 26.1. Jesus is teaching in Passover. He says, Passover's two days away. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So he predicts his betrayal. Then Matthew starts talking about how that betrayal happens. 
And he says, the chief priests, elders, assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, or there may be a riot among the people. And then skip down to 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So I think what Matthew and Mark have done is that they've moved the incident out of chronological order to give the background for Judas's decision to betray Jesus. And what they're emphasizing is that once Judas figures out Jesus is on a different wavelength in terms of gathering money and political power. He is not interested in following Jesus anymore, and so he chooses to betray Jesus for a small sum of money, and they use this story to explain that. And I think the thing that makes that not so weaselly is if you look at verse 6, the phrase they used to introduce the story is while Jesus was in Bethany. I think that's a little signal that this whole chapter in Matthew and Mark isn't in chronological order and that they're inserting an incident that happened a few days earlier because topically it helps explain what they say in 14 through 16 about Judas betraying Jesus. So Simon is a super common name. It happens at Simon the leper's house. Luke doesn't say Simon the leper. It's a Pharisee. So the other thing you have to do to come up the land where I am is say we've got two different Simons. None of them mention Lazarus. Yep. No, no, we don't think it's Lazarus's house. She probably put the dinner together, but her house may not have been big enough for this function. But there are all kinds of ways you could get that. You know, maybe Simon the leper lived 100 years ago. He built the house, and somehow Mary, Martha, and Lazarus inherited it, and it's known as the house of Simon the leper. I mean, we don't know those details. I think the simplest explanation would be Simon the leper hosted the dinner. Who knows? Maybe Simon the leper was someone else Jesus healed. So maybe he wanted to contribute to this honoring of Jesus. But we don't know. I mean, all that's rank speculation. So, yep. We've got two guys named Simon. So that's why if you read commentaries, especially commentaries that don't have a high view of inspiration, they're going to tell you the incident in Luke and the other three incidents, Matthew, Mark, and John, are the same, and the disciples just are prone to error, so they screwed up lots of details. And that's just one of the many things that are wrong in the Gospels. I think there are two incidents, and I think Matthew, Mark, and John can all be reconciled with each other. So I'm telling you, everything Matthew, Mark, and John say is true, and it's about the same incident where Mary pours perfume on Jesus. I think she did it on the head and the feet. John was interested in the feet. Each of the gospel writers has their own things they like in terms of themes that they want to emphasize, And so it is common for them to recount the same story and focus on different details of it because those details serve their particular themes they want to emphasize. So I'm not troubled unless it actually contradicts in a way that seems to me irreconcilable. And I don't think there's anything in Matthew, Mark, and John that's 
truly irreconcilable. But lots of secular scholars who don't believe in inspiration think, oh yeah, that's surely that was just an error. You had that great example, I think, last time about the car. Right. And, and one person said it was in a pond, one was a ditch, and one was, and it was a yard that was full of water, so everyone saw it differently. And that's, I think, a great yeah. example. Yeah, what she's talking about is that I had a trial um, where some of the first witnesses, um, it involved a car that kind of rolled away from the scene of the crime. And some of them said it was in a pond. And some of them said it was in a yard. And I was like, how can that be? And then finally, near the end, they had a witness and they introduced a photo with that witness's testimony. And it was a yard in front of an apartment building that sloped down to a retention pond that was dry, but it was a perfect oval of dirt because there were wet times of the year when it was literally a pond of water, and the car was sitting dead center in that pond in the center of a yard. So you could truthfully say the car is in the pond and the car is in the yard. And it was confusing as heck until someone finally came up with the photo that showed all three. And unfortunately, you know, with the Gospels, we don't have those photos. And so you have to be really cautious about how you put it together. We don't always know. That was kind of a eureka moment for me because I was like, one of these witnesses must be wrong. All right, I'm amazed you remember that, Jenny. It stuck with me. All right. Um, Okay. Any more questions about um, that dinner? All right. Well, we will start Palm Sunday, but we won't finish it. So we're told the next day, so... We tend to think next day means next calendar day. I think what he's indicating is, no, there's a break where everyone went to sleep. Then when day came, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. The great crowd that had come for the feast, meaning Passover and the week afterwards, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So first, let's talk about the crowd's perspective on what's going on. We believe palm branches are a national symbol for Israel at this point in time. So supposedly the Jordan Valley is just packed with date palms. And one of the industries that Israel has going for in the first century is selling dates and products you make with dates. And it's something that they have more than others, so even Jewish coins might have palm branches on them. And so this is totally a nationalistic celebration. The One of the interesting things here, and I think it's caught me in the past, is John is the only one who specifies they're waving palm branches. So when you go to the other Gospels, they just talk about branches, generic, or things that were actually cut down in the field. So if you read certain secular commentators on one of the other Gospels, you may think there were no palm branches on Palm Sunday, I've been caught by that before. If you read John, there were palm branches on Palm Sunday, okay? Doesn't mean everything that everyone waved in the crowd was a palm branch. And here's a question for you guys. Um, Has anyone here been to Jerusalem? Do you remember seeing palm trees in Jerusalem? No. So I thought this was amazing. I did research on this because commentators even disagree about this very basic fact, which is do palm trees even grow in Jerusalem? And the information on the internet was hazy. Um, Some people said, yes, they do, but the altitude is so high that they can't actually bear fruit. Other people said, yes, they grow, no problem, palm trees everywhere. 
Other people said, nope, altitude's so high, no palm trees at all. I'm like, this should be a really basic fact, but I've never been there, so I don't know. But this is another one of the things that's not troubling Because if you were a vendor and you knew there were going to be hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem who liked palm branches, you might just cut a load of palm branches and bring it up to Jerusalem and sell it, right? The analogy I would use is plastic beads come from China. Does that mean there are no plastic beads in Mardi Gras? Many of you probably haven't been to Mardi Gras. Let me tell you, there are plastic beads being thrown around in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. Probably not manufactured in New Orleans, but somebody knew they could make a buck, right? So they showed up. So given that it's a nationalist symbol, I don't think there's any problem whether the palm trees grow in Jerusalem or not with there being palm branches and them being waved. What the crowd is doing is they're basically saying, we are pro-Jesus being king. We are pro um, get rid of the Romans, replace them with an Israelite king who gives out free food, who heals people, who's going to make life better in all the ways we want it to be better. Okay? That's not all that surprising. Um, as you can imagine, when you get a whole bunch of people together that are living under a foreign ruler one of the subjects they have in common is probably doesn't the Roman Empire suck? That's probably a very easy conversation starter slash icebreaker for Passover. So if you are Pontius Pilate or any other Roman in Palestine, you are walking on eggshells during Passover. From your perspective, Passover is a tinderbox. And if you're Pontius Pilate, one thing to keep in mind is it's really bad because you are the guy that the folks in Rome say they are paying to keep order in Jerusalem. So, and you know, this is the kind of thing where it's really easy to spark a riot, and one thing the folks in Rome don't like are riots because riots mess up the flow of revenue to Rome. So this is a huge escalation in terms of where the Jewish leadership doesn't want this to go, where Pontius Pilate doesn't want it to go, the excitement of the crowd, and we'll talk more about that next week. But things are getting more dramatic.